So I look forward to opening God's word with you this morning. But before we do that, please join me in a word of prayer. Let's go before the Lord. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, as we open your word this morning, as we approach your word this morning, may you help us, as it were, to remove the sandals from our feet, for we stand on holy ground. Lord, we are so naturally inclined not to do that. We are so naturally inclined to rebel against you and against your word and against your law and against your gospel. So, Lord, we pray by your spirit, would you come? Would you remove the hardness of our hearts? Would you allow deaf ears to hear? Would you open blind eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law? That we may see and savor the pearl of great price, Jesus Christ. For we know your promise, that this is the one to whom you will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at your word. Lord, we tremble at your word this morning. Speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to draw your attention to a very famous and very beloved passage of the Bible. In fact, it is arguably the most beloved passage of the Bible. Spurgeon himself called it the pearl and the nightingale. Alexander McLaren said that this passage has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. J.J. Stewart Perrone said there is no passage in which the absence of all doubt, misgiving, fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. Artaxerdia points out that this may be the most famous passage in all of the Bible. It has been memorized by millions. In motel rooms around the world, travelers find a Gideon Bible which points them to this passage. It has been remembered by the soldier in the trenches, by the weary businessman sitting by himself in his hotel room. It has found its way into the heart of the prison inmate and the prodigal son. Theologically, it is actually one of the most complex pieces of scripture, so much so that only God could have authored it. It has a scope which is staggering. It sweeps from eternity past to eternity future. It starts with the eternity of God and it ends in glory. It speaks of God's condescension, Christ's role. It gives us a theology of suffering and how to react to the Lord's discipline. It may even hint at Christ's betrayal at the hands of Judas at the Last Supper. It gives us a theology of heaven. This text really has no parallel. Interested yet? The text of which I speak is not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. 
Let's read it together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. This psalm is part of what is known as the Messianic Trilogy, which includes Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. Each of these three psalms speaks of the Savior, Jesus Christ, in different aspects. Psalm 22 pictures the Savior as the servant, Psalm 23, the shepherd, Psalm 24, the sovereign. His ministry in Psalm 22 is suffering. In Psalm 23, it is providing. In Psalm 24, it is reigning. The symbol of Psalm 22 is the cross. In Psalm 23, it is the shepherd's crook. In Psalm 24, it is the crown. So Christ goes from sacrifice in Psalm 22 to provider in Psalm 23 to king in Psalm 24. The gracious sacrifice became the good shepherd who becomes the glorious sovereign, the messianic trilogy. But if you read this psalm, you will notice that David is not speaking about God in terms of pure, cold, hard theology, as if we are looking at God coldly and scientifically through a microscope. But rather, the psalm is about warmth. It's about tenderness. There's something very real about this psalm. It's as if we are stepping into David's prayer closet here this morning, and we are seeing David's personal relationship with God. If you hang around the evangelical church long enough, you will almost certainly hear the phrase, a personal relationship with God. Personal relationship with God. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? What does that look like? Well, that's exactly what Psalm 23 is here for. So much of the Old Testament is about national relationship to God, corporate relationship to God. How do I relate to God as a part of the nation of Israel, as a part of true Israel? But not here. Psalm 23 is about a personal relationship with God. In this psalm, there are no plural pronouns, only singular pronouns. There is no us or we or they, but only me 
and my, and I, and he, and you. The psalm is very personal. This is David's personal experience with God. One-on-one, singular, deep, individual, personal. This is a realer-than-real relationship with God. But David speaks about his relationship with God in ways that we would not expect. He doesn't speak in terms of creedal formulations or doctrinal statements, but he paints pictures. He draws images. He speaks poetically. And in these pictures, he describes God's relationship to him in terms of paradoxes. Paradoxes. Two seemingly contradictory things which at first glance oppose one another, but then are placed side by side with one another. Two aspects that when you first look at them seem to contradict each other, but then they are put next to each other. They are juxtaposed together. They are paradoxes. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see three paradoxical pictures of a personal relationship with God. Three paradoxical pictures of a personal relationship with God. First, a picture of majesty and meekness. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, if ever a psalm could stand on a single line, it is this one. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, look at the word Lord with me here for a second. Have you ever noticed, in almost all translations of the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are two different ways to spell Lord. The first is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. This represents the Hebrew term Adonai. It's a title. It's not a proper name. It means master, sovereign, ruler. Again, Adonai is a title not a proper name, and it is not the word that David uses here. There's a second way to spell Lord in the Old Testament, and that's what we see here in verse 1. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All capitals. Whenever you see capital L, capital O-R-D, this represents the majestic, sacred, personal name of the living God. The divine name revealed to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush, the divine name Yahweh. In Exodus 3.14, Moses asks, Who shall I say sent me? What is his name? And God said to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. The point is, God always is. God is always alive. God is always I am. There is never a moment in time in which God is not I am. He is always I am. The name points to his absolute self-sufficiency, his total sovereignty, his complete and utter uniqueness, the fact that he depends on nothing and no one for his existence from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. 
Psalm 90, verse 2. Does not get much more majestic, much more transcendent, much higher than the name Yahweh. It's a personal name. It's a personal name for a personal psalm. The name Yahweh begins and ends this psalm. Look at it in verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. Then again in verse 6. I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. The divine name Yahweh begins and ends this psalm. It forms brackets, bookends around Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is rooted in the eternal nature of God. And Yahweh here is pictured as a shepherd. Now here's where the paradox comes in. A shepherd in those days in ancient Israel was not a mighty thing. It was not a glamorous job. Only now, after the story of David and then of Jesus, do we tend to romanticize the concept of a shepherd. But back then, in ancient Israel, to pasture and guide livestock? Oh no, oh no, that's a job reserved for the poor, the lowly, the underprivileged. It doesn't get much lower than a shepherd. No kid ever grew up wanting to become a shepherd. It was always the youngest son if a family needed a shepherd, like David in 1 Samuel 16. The oldest? It's too important. Give the job to the youngest. They had to live with the sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, day, night, summer, winter, fair weather, foul weather. They ate with the sheep, drank with the sheep, slept with the sheep, and they even smelled like the sheep. It was not a noble task. And here is where the paradox comes into focus. On the one hand, We have the great I am, Yahweh, sovereign ruler, master of the universe, highest of the high, the most majestic, self-sufficient, sovereign ruler. On the other hand, we have the lowly, humble, meek, broken shepherd. And they are one and the same person. Now this is absolutely unheard of in the world of religion. The theological terms are God is both transcendent, that is, he is high and lifted up, and imminent, he is lowly. All other religions know nothing of this. Their gods are only one extreme or the other. For instance, Islam or Hinduism. Their gods are completely transcendent, untouchable, distant, fearful. Now think of the ancient Greek and Roman religions. Think of Zeus or Aphrodite or Mars. Their gods are completely imminent. They look like us. They talk like us. They act like us. They lose their temper like us. They lust like us. They're completely imminent. The religions of the world know of only one extreme or the other, but not both. Brothers and sisters, The splendor and uniqueness of our God lies not just in his majesty as Yahweh, nor just in his meekness as a shepherd, 
but in the way his majesty and his meekness mingle together in perfect proportion. This is what this image is trying to portray. A God who is highest to lowest, majesty and meekness, and everything in between. Now I want you to think of this paradox as I read to you the following quote by Jonathan Edwards. Edwards says, There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Meeting together in Jesus Christ are infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under the sufferings of evil, absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation, self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. Psalm 23 is about a God with this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He is highest to lowest, strongest and humblest, and everything in between. Like a ruler born in a manger. Like a king riding on the foal of a donkey. It is a stunning contrast. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? It means that you know God in both your weak moments and your strong moments. You know that God is there for you when you need a strong hand and when you need a shoulder to cry on. You know that God is there for you to sympathize with you in seasons of joy and seasons of suffering. You know that he's there for you in the best of times and in the worst of times. There is no possible situation that you cannot turn to God for. He knows both the highs and the lows. All of your diverse joys, triumphs, trials, and sufferings are met by his diverse excellencies. He is Yahweh, a shepherd. The point of verse 1 is that God is completely and comprehensively sufficient in all imaginable areas of life. And notice, not only is he Yahweh a shepherd, but he is Yahweh my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. So there's a contrast here. If God is an absolute, sovereign, self-sufficient shepherd, what does that make us? Sheep. We are sheep. This is a sheep's eye view of God. Sheep, left to themselves, lack everything. And that's why David moves on and says, I shall not want. That is, I shall lack nothing. And David tells us what he shall not lack. Rest, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. One of the basic necessities of life, 
rest. The shepherd guides his sheep to rest. Because of natural predators and wolves, sheep cannot sleep unless they feel safe and secure. Here, the shepherd provides safety, security, and rest. Also, we shall not lack food in green pastures, a perfect place not only for rest, but for food, for grazing. The shepherd guides his sheep to eat, sustenance, strength, nutrition. Now, here is where I'd like us to go past all of our preconceived notions of Psalm 23, our preconceived American notions of Psalm 23. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, where the psalm is printed on some nice poster or book, picture frame, and it's a shepherd, and he's got his flock of sheep. And you can see in the background rolling green grassy hills as far as the eye can see. Looks like it's set in England or New England or Switzerland, something like that. Well, that's wrong. God didn't, or David didn't write this psalm in Vermont or New Hampshire or the Alps. David wrote Psalm 23 in Southern California. That's right. The climate of Israel is very much like the climate of Southern California. And you know that just like in Israel, right here, right now, a patch of green grass or a meadow is very hard to come by in Southern California. But the shepherd knows exactly where the grass grows and leads the sheep to eat there. We also shall not lack water. He leads me beside quiet waters. Boy, David understood a Southern California drought. Brown is the new green. You know, Pastor John mentioned I used to pastor in Riverside. And the thing that always puzzled me about Riverside is there's no river. (laughs) Just as a shepherd, that's a paradox. Just as a shepherd knows where to find the green grass meadows where the sheep can eat, he also knows where he can find those little streams of water where the sheep can drink to their heart's delight in those parched Middle Eastern summer days. But not only does he give us physical provision, verse 2, he also gives us spiritual provision, verse 3. We shall not lack spiritually. He restores my soul. Literally, he causes my soul repentance, or he converts my soul. He retrieves my soul from the brink of death. And then he guides me in the paths of righteousness. Now, the translation, paths of righteousness, was first made famous by Martin Luther. He first translated it that way. And Luther was trying to tell us that this is not just a straight path, but a righteous path. Not just a right path, but a path that is faithful to the law of God and to the character of God. So the first one is negative. He restores my soul. He takes me off the evil path. The second one is positive. He puts me on the good path, away from wickedness towards righteousness, away from unholiness towards holiness. And Yahweh does this all 
for his namesake. The sheep, when they are well-fed, when they are thriving, all of that redounds to the glory and honor of the shepherd. If the picture of verse 1 is complete sufficiency in all areas of life, then the picture of verses 2 and 3 is complete dependence in all areas of life. Now, do you realize a sheep without a shepherd is a dead sheep? There are such things as wild horses, wild dogs, wild cats, I suppose. But did you know that there is no such thing as a wild sheep? And that's because a sheep without a shepherd is a dead sheep. A sheep has absolutely no independence from his shepherd. A sheep depends on his shepherd for absolutely everything in life, even life itself. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, are there areas of your life in which you have excluded God as shepherd? You say, Lord, I need your help here, here, and here, but not here. Lord, I want to depend on you in every trial except this one. In every relationship except this one. I want to give you credit for every joy and triumph except this one. I want to exclude you from this area of my life. Well, if you are doing that, you are treating God like a consultant, not a shepherd. A sheep depends moment by moment on the shepherd for absolutely everything in life. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you depending on God, your shepherd, for absolutely everything in life? moment by moment? Are there areas of your life in which you have excluded God as shepherd? Are you trusting in yourself and not in God in any area of your life? As a resident physician, I used to work these 30-hour shifts, sometimes 34-hour shifts, in the ICU. And you're up 30 hours straight, you're doing some crazy stuff, putting tubes down people's throats, hooking them up to machines to help them breathe, putting lines down people's necks close to their hearts. Patients are on the brink of death. And before these shifts, I used to tend towards nervousness, anxiety. Well, at the back of my house, there's a window at the back of the kitchen that faces to the backyard, and there's a shrub right there in your line of sight. And I love this shrub because the hummingbirds love to come feed at it in the morning. And I love to see their little beaks reaching into the flowers and their little wings fluttering at 1,000 miles an hour because it reminds me of Matthew 6:26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father provides for them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, there was this one particular morning where I was particularly anxious. I woke up thinking, Lord, how am I going to get through the next 30 hours? And I was drinking coffee in my kitchen looking out the back window, 
and I look up for my cup of coffee. And instead of the hummingbird feeding at the bush, I see the hummingbird right at the window, looking me right in the face with its wings fluttering a thousand miles an hour, staring me directly in the eye. It's as if God was speaking to me at that very moment, looking me straight in the eye. Don't worry, Ben. I'm your shepherd. You shall not want. Trust me. Depend on me. Brothers and sisters, to have a personal relationship with God means to be completely dependent on a completely sovereign and sufficient shepherd in all imaginable areas of life. Well, the second paradoxical picture of a personal relationship with God is a picture of comfort through discipline. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, to ancient Israelites, valleys were to be feared. In our culture, the place of hardship is hiking up the side of a mountain. To hike up the side of a mountain to get to the top, now that's hard. But in a valley, we could picnic in a valley. However, to the Israelite, it's the opposite. In ancient Israel, valleys were considered dangerous places. And part of the reason is, from the beginning of Israelite history, think about this, their enemies had chariots, whereas Israel did not. Think of Egypt and the Red Sea in Exodus 13, where it says that Pharaoh pursued Israel with all of the chariots of Egypt. Chariots obviously do better and valleys where you have flat terrain and roads than on the side of a mountain. And so Israel always sought to build their cities on mountains. For instance, Jerusalem, the city set on a hill. The valleys were considered dangerous places. And this isn't just any valley. This is the valley of the shadow of death. Now, the valley of the shadow of death is the most famous translation, and it's tough to beat that, but the Hebrew isn't just talking about death. The literal wording is the valley of deepest darkness, or the valley of the shadowiest of shadows. Job uses this phrase, this term, to speak of a valley of a season of despair. So the valley of the shadow of death includes death, but it is broader than just death. It refers to all the seasons of life that are dark. The picture is of the annual trek of the sheep. The sheep in ancient Israel in the summer, in the winter they would feed at the lowlands, but in the summers they would go to the high pastures, the mountainous areas. And in order to get to these mountains, they had to go through these particular valleys in Israel. Predators and wolves lurk every which way in the canyon walls. Thieves, robbers, and murderers would descend upon helpless people and flocks to rob them and leave them for dead. Sudden storms and floods would sweep across the valley floors. And because the sun does not shine very well in the valley, there are literal shadows which may at any moment truly become shadows of death. 
These are the valleys of deepest darkness, the valleys of the shadowiest of shadows. But notice, the valley of the shadow of death is not an accident. It is as much a part of the green pastures which lay beside quiet waters. It is as much a part of the right paths as these green pastures and quiet waters. And it is the only way to the house of the Lord. It is the only way to the house of Yahweh. So the valleys of deepest darkness are not consequences of the shepherd getting lazy. This is not a mistake. This is not a wrong turn. This is all part of the shepherd's plan. These are part of the paths of righteousness. Sometimes God gives you valleys. Sometimes God gives you the valleys of deepest darkness. Now that might be fearful, but notice what David says. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The presence of the shepherd makes all the difference. Who you walk with through that valley makes all the difference. And here we can tell that this is a personal relationship with God because David goes from talking about his shepherd in the cool, lush pastures of life to talking to his shepherd in times of deep darkness. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He switches from the third person to the second person. He goes from talking about his shepherd to talking to his shepherd. Brothers and sisters, when you walk through your valleys of deepest darkness, do you talk to him? Do you speak with him? Do you go from the third person to the second person? Do you know that he's there with you, walking with you? But how is God's presence manifested to us in these times of deepest darkness. Well, here you'd expect David to say something like, your comfort and gentle care, they comfort me. Or your blanket, which keeps me warm, comforts me. But no. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here's where the paradox comes in. Now, the rod and the staff were instruments of power and protection. Yes, absolutely, there is no doubt that there is an emphasis on that in this text. But you have to realize that they were also instruments of correction and of discipline. And that's a nuance of this text that we cannot overlook. The rod and the staff are not just pictures of protection, they are also pictures of guidance. They could be very painful to experience. The rod was a cudgel carried on the belt, and it was used to ward off wild wolves and natural predators to protect the sheep. But it was also used to keep the sheep in line, to discipline the sheep when they got unruly. It's the same word, shebet, used in Proverbs 13.24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. The rod of discipline. The staff was a stick with a crook, a stick, a staff, which goes up and curves around at the top, and you all know it very well. 
And it was used to corral and pull back the sheep when they got into trouble. Sheep, as you know, were very stupid animals, and they would be known to wander off into ditches and even off the sides of cliffs. And the shepherd would use the staff, the crook, to wrap it around the neck of the sheep and yank them back into safety. Sound painful? Yes. The rod could be painful. The staff could be painful. But they are both good for the sheep. Kevin DeYoung says, it's like saying as children, Dad, Mom, when, in, when I'm in my moments of deepest darkness, your spanking spoon, it comforts me. <laughs> now that's a paradox. That's unexpected. In this world, there are two general approaches to trial and suffering. The first is what we will call the religious approach, the moralist approach, the legalist approach. When, religion, or when suffering hits a religious person, they tend to ask, what have I been doing wrong? Why is God punishing me? Religious people generally believe that if you live a good life, then good things will happen to you. God will bless you, and you'll suffer less. You've earned it. So if I just do this, this, and this, God will bless me. If I just pray more, give more, do good works, if I'm just better with God, then God will bless me, and then I'll suffer less. That's the religious approach. The secular approach says the opposite, and that's the second approach, the secular approach or what we will call the evolutionary approach. And this approach is different. When suffering hits, these people see suffering as a result of random acts. See? My suffering proves God isn't there. Or worse yet, God doesn't care. My suffering and trials are just random events of life. Life is a crapshoot. Doesn't matter. Now, these are the two approaches, religion and secularism. Now, underneath it all, think with me here, underneath it all, these two approaches have something that they share in common. Control. Control. When life seems out of control, both of these approaches tend to control or try to control everything. The religious person seeks control over his life by saying, if I just do this, this, and this, then God will bless me, and I'll suffer less. I've earned it. The secular person says the opposite. It doesn't matter anyway. It's just random events, so I can live however I want. It makes no difference. At their root, both approaches are just power plays to try to keep you in control when life's circumstances seem out of control. Brothers and sisters, is there any chance that either of these mindsets have crept into your thinking? God must be punishing me. No, he's not. He's guiding you to the house of the Lord. God is, God is absent. He doesn't exist. Of course he does. He's there with you, walking with you. Do you talk to him? God doesn't care. Of course he does. He cares enough to guide you with his rod and his staff. 
Well, there's a third approach that only a person with a personal relationship with God can have. Trust. Trust. When life seems out of control, give yourself over to God. When it seems that you have lost control over everything in life, give your life over to a sovereign shepherd who is in complete control. Brothers and sisters, do not fear his rod and his staff, but be comforted by them, even if they are painful, because they represent the shepherd's commitment to keep you in line, to keep you from straying off the path, to guide you to the house of the Lord. Now, I'm reminded of one of the, my favorite passage, passages of Pilgrim's Progress, a book written by John Bunyan. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress... I'd like to give you a strong encouragement to read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a classic. And just your completely random fact for the day, the best-selling Christian books, in, at least in the English language, in history, history's best-selling Christian books, the first book, starts with a B, Bible. Yes, very good. Number two, Pilgrim's Progress. Number three, Book of Common Prayer, which is the Anglican Book of Liturgy. Number four, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Number five, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Number six, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. That's your completely random fact for the day. That's to get you to read Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> so in this section of Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is trying to find his way to the celestial city, which is heaven. And he has to walk through pitch darkness in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, it's a bit of an extended quote, so I'd like to read it with you. Bunyan writes, At the end of this valley was another, called the valley of the shadow of death. And Christian needs to go through it, because the way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. Now, this valley is a very solitary place. There was on the right hand a very deep ditch. That ditch is the ditch into which the blind have led the blind in all ages and have miserably perished. Again, behold, on the left hand, there was a very dangerous mire into which if even a good man falls, he can find no bottom for his foot to stand on. The pathway here was exceedingly narrow and therefore a good Christian was struggling in it. For when he sought in the dark to shun the ditch on the one hand, he was ready to tip over into the mire on the other. Also, when he sought to escape the mire, without great carefulness, he would be ready to fall into the ditch. Thus he went on, and I heard him, him here sigh bitterly. For besides the dangers mentioned above, the pathway here was so dark, and oftentimes when he lifted up his foot to set forward, he did not know where he should set it next. When Christian had traveled in this disconsolate condition some considerable time, he thought he heard the voice of a man as going before him, saying, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And by and by the day broke. Then Christian said, he has turned the shadow of death into the morning. 
Now when morning had come, he looked back, not out of a desire to return, but to see by the light of the day what hazards he had gone through in the dark. So he saw more perfectly the ditch that was on the one hand and the mire that was on the other, also how narrow the way was which led between them both. But now all were afar off. Brothers and sisters, are you walking through the valley of deepest darkness right now? Are you walking through the valley of the shadowiest of shadows? Sometimes it seems so dark you don't know where to set your foot next. Sometimes it's so dark you often sigh bitterly. Sometimes it's only after the fact that you look back on that season of life and you saw that, that you weren't alone in it, that the shepherd was there. He was keeping you from falling into the mire with his rod. He was keeping you from falling into the ditch with his staff. And sometimes it can be so painful. But he will guide you safely through. Brethren, if you are walking in the valley of deepest darkness right now, fear not. For the shepherd not only leads you into the valley, he will walk with you in it, and he will guide you through it. Spurgeon said, when he cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. Well, the third and last paradox of a personal relationship with God is a picture of celebration in suffering. Look at verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now in this verse, the metaphor changes. The image goes from shepherd to host, from pasture to palace, from grazing to feasting. God is no longer shepherd. He's now host. And we are his honored guests, no longer his sheep. He anoints our head with oil, a gesture which is reserved for only the most important guests, the VIP. There's abundance at this feast, for my cup overflows. The wine cup never runs dry. This is a picture of a glorious feast. This is a picture of a celebration. But this feast is in a strange place, isn't it? And here the paradox is more evident. A feast in the presence of my enemies? We normally flee in the presence of our enemies. We normally fight in the presence of our enemies. We don't normally feast in the presence of our enemies. Well, the point is, in life, there are always enemies. The world is a hard, fallen place. We cannot escape that. But in the midst of it, if you have a personal relationship with God, God will meet you. And he will give you abundant joy, abundant glory, abundant honor. Do you get what this is saying, brothers and sisters? This is not a feast after the enemies have left. This is not joy after the suffering. This is not joy follows the tears. No, this is a feast in the presence of the enemies. This is joy in the midst of the suffering. There's a kind of joy that you can have from avoiding suffering. That's not the kind of joy that's mentioned here. And that's not the kind of joy that will change you. This is the kind of joy that you get through the suffering. Those of you who have a personal relationship with God know 
that your times of greatest intimacy with the Lord are not times where life is going great and everything's hunky-dory and the sun is shining and everything's going your way. Your times of greatest intimacy with God have also been your times of deepest darkness, of greatest suffering. Have they not? Samuel Rutherford, one of the Westminster divines, said, when he was put into the cellars of affliction, the great king keeps his finest wine there, not in the courtyard where the sun shines. Brethren, God is eager to feast with those who wait for him. David goes on to say in verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. The translation, will follow me, is simply too weak. It should be, they pursue me. They pursue me with aggression. They chase after me. And the image is, on the one hand, you have the enemies running after you, chasing after you. You have temptations chasing after you, running after you, pursuing you. But there is something greater, something better, something stronger than even that. The goodness and loving kindness of God, the covenant attributes of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, the covenant actions of God are pursuing you even stronger. And they will make sure that you get to the house of the Lord. They will make sure you get to your heavenly home. Now that's what a personal relationship with God looks like. I want to ask you, how do you get a personal relationship with God? How do I enter into a personal relationship with God? Well, the answer is right before us. Psalm 23, verse 1. I am is my shepherd. The I am is my shepherd. In John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Sound familiar? Christ is the good shepherd. Christ is Yahweh, our good shepherd. But of course, the New Testament gives us a bit of a twist to the story. For not only did the shepherd guide the sheep, nurture the sheep, but in a stunning turn of events, the shepherd became a sheep. The shepherd became a lamb. The shepherd became a sheep who became a sacrifice. John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the shepherd became a sheep who became a sacrifice. And in yet another stunning turn of events, the sheep rose up and killed the shepherd. One writer says, The shepherd gave his life for his sheep who strangely became his murderers. It was our sin, brothers, that killed our shepherd. Behold my shepherd upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Shepherd gave up his life for his sheep. And look again with me at Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is host. Christ is your host. 
Luke 12, 37, Jesus says he will be our host. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And here we have perhaps the greatest paradox of all. Not only will Christ be our host, not only do we feast in the presence of our enemies, but we have to realize we were the enemies. We were the enemies of the host. We were the enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were the enemies of the host, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ became a sheep and died so that the sheep could have a shepherd. Jesus Christ, the host, died for his enemies so that we could feast with him one day. Well, in closing... Roland E. Prothro tells the story of the passing of Edward Irving, powerful Scottish preacher. Prothro writes, When other comforts had failed and fame had fled, he clung still to his Bible and made the Psalms his constant companions. The end was near. It was evident that his life was rapidly passing away. His mind began to wander. Those who watched at his bedside could not understand the broken utterances spoken in an unknown tongue by his faltering voice. But at last it was found that he was repeating to himself in Hebrew, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The last articulate words that fell from his lips were, If I die, I die unto the Lord. Amen. And with these, he passed away at midnight on December 7th, 1834. Friends, unbelievers here this morning, I know you know Psalm 23. But let me ask you, do you know the shepherd of Psalm 23? Do you have a personal relationship with God? The only way to have a personal relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. Repent today, believe in him, so that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will not walk through it alone. So that when you die, you will die unto the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for the great shepherd of the sheep. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who died so that we could be with you one day. Thank you for the great I am, who is everything and all to us. Lord, we pray that as we walk through our valleys of deep darkness, that we would trust in you, depend on you, and find also that we can feast with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.